So we've already heard it's Palm Sunday, and so I'm, that's where I'm going to start my talk. So uh, just settle back and uh, listen to this. Jesus resolutely took the road for Jerusalem. I tell you, if they were to be quiet, the stones themselves would begin shouting. I understand that many have already hailed him as king. A king? <laughs> a king of beggars, whores and thieves. We've seen his like before. They come, they make their claims, they go. They're forgotten. Don't be blind. His following is growing by the day. The people admire him. And think he is a king. Let me give you a warning. If this man should threaten the peace further, I shall look to you. Perhaps he's right. It's time we confronted the Galilean. This man has done nothing to deserve death. So I will have him scourged. And let him go. You are obliged to release one man to us at this festival. Release to us Barabbas. 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 And away with this man. just five days it went from the crowd acclaiming him to them shouting for him to be crucified how did that happen palm sunday is at best says wallace Veets, a day of temporary triumph at worst it is an illustration of the fickle nature of the voice of the people so as the week unfolds it's downhill all the way to good friday two donkeys were walking in Jerusalem when one donkey said to the other, just yesterday I was carrying Jesus and the people were singing and shouting and throwing down their clothes for me to walk on. Today, they don't even recognize me. The other donkey replied, that's how it is, my friend. Without Jesus, you are nothing. 
they soon forgot Jesus, though. And so I want to explore how the people went from shouting Hosanna to shouting crucify him. And I'm going to look at three different groups of people who are involved. And firstly, the religious leaders. So before Palm Sunday, they had a long history of clashes with Jesus. The Pharisees believed that if the whole of the nation of Israel kept the whole of the law for 24 hours, a day and a night, then the Messiah would come. They were very keen that this would happen, and so they tried to help that by setting up what they called a hedge around the law. So, for example, uh, on the Sabbath, where the law said you, you shall not work on the Sabbath, they said, let's make it 25 hours instead of 24, and then we won't work on the Sabbath. And they made up a lot of rules about what constituted work. Uh, for instance, they objected to Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath because they said that was harvesting. They were just picking them and eating them, but they objected. The law contained ceremonial hand-washing. Before you ate, there was a way you had to wash your hands. And the Pharisees complained that Jesus' disciples didn't do this. And Jesus' answer really offended the Pharisees. He said, it was your heart being clean that was most important. Jesus angered the leaders by forgiving sins. They accused him of blasphemy when he said, your sins are forgiven. And then he proved his point that he could do that by healing the lame man. When Jesus cast out evil spirits, the Pharisees accused him of being in league with Satan. It wasn't all bad. A leader of the synagogue called Jairus came to ask for help for his daughter when she had died. And Jesus raised her from the dead. But mostly they were having confrontations. And the first time we read about the Pharisees uh, wanting to kill Jesus, plotting to kill him, was when he healed the man with a withered hand. Again, it was on a Sabbath, and the Pharisees accused Jesus of working. And Jesus retorted, wouldn't you rescue your sheep if it fell down a well on the Sabbath? The religious leaders felt that Jesus had gone too far. It was the final straw. And a man who could heal was looking too much like being acclaimed as the Messiah and a king, as we saw in the film. He was in danger of gaining more influence than the Pharisees had. So they began to plot to kill him. And because of this danger, for much of his ministry, Jesus kept away from Jerusalem. So during the Gospels, you'll read time and again that Jesus was in Galilee doing something. And then uh, one of the Gospels says, towards the time of Easter, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew it was time. So now, uh, after what we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into great acclaim, what was happening there was he was declaring something. There was a prophecy in Zechariah where Zechariah had said, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So Jesus, in getting his disciples to get that colt, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, was saying, 
this prophecy is being fulfilled in me. I am the king. He was now making no secret of who he was. And after that, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he cleared the temple. He offended the religious leaders even more by clearing it of the money changers. Those traders made a profit for the leaders of the um, Jews at the expense of the poor. And then Matthew tells us that the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Everyone saw and even the children were shouting, praise God for the son of David. And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law were indignant. They began to plot even more. The very next day, Jesus was again in the temple and they questioned his authority. Uh, they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Jesus is good at questions, and he answered this with a question. Okay, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? They talked it over amongst themselves. If we say it was from heaven, then he will ask us, why didn't we go and be baptized? If we say it was from people, from a hu just human thing, then the people will mob us because they believe that John was a prophet. So in the end, they copped out. They said, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And over the next few days, as Jesus taught, he questioned more and more their attitude. And he was very, very rude and cutting to them. He said they were hypocrites. They were blind guides. They were blind fools. They didn't practice what they taught. They loved to be treated as important. He even called them snakes and sons of vipers. Jesus knew what he was doing. It was no accident that he was confronting them at this time. So we come to the plot, and initially the leaders just tried to discredit Jesus by trying to catch him out, asking about grounds for divorce and signs to prove his authority. They tried to tap, trap him by asking, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, none of the people wanted to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar was part of the invading, um, the occupying army, the Romans. But Jesus sort of fielded it by saying, whose face is on this coin? If it ceases, we must give that to him, but we must give to God what is his. The Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with a discussion about a woman who married someone and then he died and she married his brother and he died and, and so on through seven brothers. The Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. And yet they said, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They were just trying to catch him out. But Jesus taught with great authority and told them that they didn't know the word of God. So they got nowhere trying to discredit Jesus by tripping him up. And yet he was a threat. They were legalists. He was warning against their deceptive teaching. They were being threatened by his popularity. They didn't want to lose their position. And they led the plot to destroy Jesus, meeting with Caiaphas and looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus. Just going to read a few verses from Matthew 26. 
At the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. And yet that is just what they did. That was the part, their part in what happened over the next five days. So that's the religious leaders. They were trying to protect their position. They sort of started out from something good. They wanted people to keep the law, but they just took it so far that they made it a real burden for everyone and confronted Jesus with it. So what about the ordinary people? The people who shouted, Hosanna. Generally, during Jesus' ministry, he had different reactions from people. Um, for instance, he was rejected at Nazareth, his hometown. Some wealthy people followed him. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, for instance, offered him a tomb after he had been killed. But others he offended. Um, when the poor widow came into the temple and dropped two small coins into the treasury, Jesus said to his disciples, she's given far more than anyone else. Can you imagine how you would feel if you'd just written a check out for a thousand pounds and dropped it into the offering? And then Andrew said, that lady who's given uh, five pence has given more than everyone. You might be a little peeved. Though I'm not sure Andrew counts the offering. Poor people generally greeted Jesus with great enthusiasm. And why shouldn't they? He fed them. He healed them. Uh, he told them stories. And he loved them and cared for them. But many of them were like these pictures from the parable of the sower. In that parable, it says that some seed fell on the path and the birds ate it up. Some fell among the rocks where the seed sprouted and died from lack of moisture. And some of the seed got entangled in thorns and this choked it. The seed represented God's word. And for many of these people, God's word did not take root in their lives, did not produce fruit. They loved to be around Jesus. They loved the stories, the free lunches, the dramatic healings. But in the end, they were swayed by their leaders and they had no real loyalty to Jesus. So just a few days after they gleefully greeted Jesus as their Messiah, they were shouting, crucify him. Where were those enthusiastic disciples who proclaimed, God has given us a king, long live the king, let all heaven rejoice. They were nowhere to be found. They greeted him with joy, but the applause always ends. There is a story about Napoleon who uh, was traveling through Switzerland with his army, and he was greeted with tremendous applause and enthusiasm. And one of his supporters said to him, it must be delightful to be greeted with such demonstrations of enthusiastic admiration. Huh, said Napoleon. This same unthinking crowd, under a slight change of circumstances, will follow me just as eagerly to the scaffold. And this happened to Jesus. The same people who cheered him on Sunday were crying, crucify him and give us Barabbas before the week was out. They greeted him with joy, but the applause ended. And the last group of people I want to look at were the disciples. 
These were the people represented by the good soil in the parable, where the word of God went into their lives and bore fruit. They'd been with Jesus a long time. They shared his life. They were part of his ministry. Yet they didn't really comprehend what was about to happen. Jesus had warned them there was going to be trouble. Uh, A couple of verses from Matthew 26 again. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus knew what was coming, but they didn't understand that. There's Judas. Perhaps he was so annoyed about the expensive ointment that had been poured on Jesus' feet. He said, shouldn't we give the money to the poor? Shouldn't we sell it, give the money to the poor? Perhaps he felt he wasn't being loved as much as John and Peter. Whatever the reason, the money was more important to him than Jesus. And so he went to the Pharisees and said, I'll help you. I'll betray Jesus to you. And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Later, when he realized what he'd done, he went out and hanged himself. He was so remorseful. But he betrayed Jesus, even though he was one of his disciples, even though he'd been with Jesus for some time, even though he'd seen Jesus in all situations, even though he'd seen him do miracles, forgive sins, raise people from the dead, he still betrayed him. And what about the other disciples? They were loyal to Jesus, yet they failed him. First, they were too tired to pray in the garden with Jesus. They all fell asleep. And then when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they were afraid. Peter struck out with his sword. When they took Jesus away for trial, they were afraid to go against the crowd, and they ran away, except for Peter, who followed at a distance and crept in to try and find out what was going on. When he was asked if he was with Jesus, if he was one of his disciples, he said, no, not me. I don't know that man. He denied him three times. And then he remembered that Jesus had predicted he would do so. Peter, who declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you, had you denied Jesus all the others had joined in that. They said, yes, Lord, we won't deny you. We won't, we'll, won't forsake you. We'll die with you. And yet when trouble came, Jesus was on his own. And so Jesus was crucified. A deadly coalition of temple hierarchy, Roman government, and betrayal within the band of disciples led to his death. The challenge that Jesus issued during that week caused many to abandon his cause and to forsake him. His disciples couldn't even keep their promise to watch with him for an hour. He'd asked them earlier when he noticed that some were slipping away, will you also go away? And they assured him that though all others might abandon him, we will not go away. But now, when it was dangerous... They couldn't stay. They couldn't watch with him for an hour. They couldn't keep that promise. They were the inner circle, Peter and James and John. And yet, while Jesus sweated blood, they took naps. 
They made all kinds of promises to Jesus by night, but by day they just ran away. When he was actually on his way to Calvary, carrying the burden of his cross, his back lacerated from scourging, a crown of thorns on his brow, he stumbled and he needed someone to bear the weight of that cross. Where were his disciples then? Nowhere to be found. A Roman soldier had to volunteer a stranger, Simon of Cyrene, to come and carry the cross. No one came out of this wheat well apart from Jesus. And we would probably be no different. I would like to think, I, I love Peter, I love the stories of Peter, and I would like to think that I'm like him, you know. I'd jump out of the boat and walk on the water. I'd say, Jesus, you're the Messiah. But when push came to shove, Jesus was in trouble and Peter denied him. And I'd probably be the same. In fact, this week, there's something, I had an opportunity to say something for Jesus. And I missed it. Not out of um, fear, but just out of not being, not listening to what was going on. Not listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So no one came out of it well, and I don't think that we would be much different. There's a controversy going on at the moment in the world of rugby about free speech. And uh, Vinopola has refused to back down from his Christian views. And because of that, he's been dropped by Channel 4 and has been called before the RFU. So he's facing uh, a possible end to his rugby career. Maybe not as bad as that, but he ha has not backed down. He's saying God wants us to live differently. What would we do? Last week, Mark mentioned middle-class sins. And uh, I've got a list of sins here, which is quite similar. It's a poem written uh, quite a while ago. It's called Respectable Sins. And I apologize for the language, because it's very old-fashioned. But please take the meaning of it and ignore the non-PCness of the language. Respectable sins. The sin of Pilate, cowardice and political time-serving. The sin of Caiaphas, spiritual pride and ecclesiastical time-serving. The sin of the soldiers and of the crowd, brutality, the lust for blood, the blind, following the majority. These sins are not museum specimens impaled on pins in glass cases to be examined at leisure by those interested in religion, strange reactions of long-ago people in faraway places. No, far from it. They are the sins of Acacia Avenue and Laburnum Grove. Or the Greenfields Estate or the racecourse estate. They're the sins of the milkman and the neighbour who borrows your mower and the man who sits next to you on the 815. The sins of ordinary people going daily to ordinary jobs and returning by six to unspectacular homes and wives. Your sins and my sins. The sins of the children of our various parents. The sins of the man in your shaving mirror. It is these the penny-plain treacheries of John Citizen and his unglamorous wife, which flame in the heat of the moment and flare to the sudden murder of God. 
The leaders were jealous and protective of their position. They were worried about keeping the law and keeping in with the Romans. The people were fickle and turned against Jesus when the time came, when trouble came. Even the disciples turned their backs on him. Do we dare to think that we would be different? Well, perhaps. Because we live in the era of the Holy Spirit, the era of Jesus being raised from the dead. We live in the era of the empty tomb. Christ has gone ahead to show us a different way. And even to those who deserted him, for them there was restoration. Jesus met them for breakfast and made it right. He asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. Asked him to look after his sheep. Jesus restored Peter to a relationship with him. There is a way back. However badly we let Jesus down, there is a way back. Because of his grace, there was always forgiveness and reconciliation. And then, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit came and brought a difference. Those disciples who run away rather than stay with Jesus were transformed. Peter, who didn't want to be identified with Jesus, preached a sermon and thousands were saved. However you feel today, this is what God wants for you, for your future. A bold, fruitful, spirit-filled life. So when we think about Easter, let's not think about the way people turned against Jesus in the five days, but let's think about 50 days' time when the Holy Spirit came. How do we respond to this? Maybe as we've gone through it, you feel that you have let Jesus down. Maybe you feel like I did, that I didn't take an opportunity that God gave me. Or maybe you feel that you've actually not spoken up when you should. Or you've lied when you should have been straight and truthful. As we come to communion in a moment, we can come and know forgiveness for our failures, for our middle-class sins. Maybe we just want to look good. Maybe we don't want to um, stand out from the crowd. Maybe at work we're protecting our position by not rocking the boat. So as you come to communion, you can ask for forgiveness and strength to be different in future. Or maybe you can just ask that the Holy Spirit will come and transform you. Because he will. He will give you the boldness. The boldness that Peter lacked on Good Friday, he made up for later. And we can do the same. I'm going to hand over to Nathan now.